Hi, I'm Jules van Binsberg and a finance professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Jonathan Burke, a finance professor at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. And this is the All Else Equal podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. If Jules and I were good friends and we often get on the phone and we complain about the mistakes people make. And we thought to ourselves the last time we were shooting the breeze, why don't we just do a podcast on it? And we decided, let's do a podcast on the five most common mistakes in finance. So that's what we're going to do today. So Jules, what mistakes should we start off with? Well, actually, Jonathan, before we start with that, I think we should give a little more context in the sense that obviously in the capacity of our job, we talk to a lot of people all the time, right? We talk with students at various levels, undergraduate students, MBA students, PhD students, executives in our executive education programs. We talk with university administrators. We talk with corporate executives. And so therefore, we just came to the conclusion there's a certain set of mistakes that we're seeing across the board. And so really, we don't want to focus here on the mistakes that an individual at some point makes. We really want to look at structurally what seems to go wrong every single time. And I think that the reason why these things go wrong every single time is that after you understand them, they may seem simple, but certainly before that, they're actually quite complicated. They're very deep insights. And so one thing that I've always appreciated about the field of finance is its internal logical consistency. And so a lot of these things that we're going to talk about relate to each other one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, Jules. I call it the professor's mistake. We've studied this for so long. And then everything looks so obvious to us. And when the students don't get it, we go, what morons they are. (laughs) But in fact, when we were in their position, we didn't get it either, right? We're just completely forgotten how hard and how deep these concepts are. And so anyway, since you punted and didn't want to pick the first one, I'm going to pick the first one. Sounds perfect to me. Why don't we start with the mistake of mixing up return measures and value measures? Yeah, so I think that In finance, and I think this actually holds also across our profession, Jonathan, I think that we gotten really used to focusing most of our analyses and evaluations and performance evaluations on return measures, meaning there is some percentage change in the investment value, and we're going to compare that percentage change with some benchmark percentage change, say what the stock market did as a whole, and then we're going to say that we did a good job or a bad job relative on that percentage measure. But the problem, and I think this is the easiest way to explain the difference, is percentages don't pay any bills. I cannot buy data or pay salaries or pay bonuses or do anything with percentages. The only thing that I can pay bills with is actual dollars, actual value that I have created. And so making fantastic returns on small investments that generate no dollars, what am I supposed to do with that? Yes, Jules, this is a huge common mistake that we see, which is people focus on returns instead of the dollars. So, you know, simple example, would you rather make 5% on a $100 investment or 1% on a million dollar investment? Obviously, you're better off with 1% on a million dollar investment than 5% on a $100 investment. Whereas the bragging rights, of course, are on the 5%. You might ask, why are we in this? I mean, when people talk about investments in the stock markets, they only talk about returns. And so you might say, are they all making a mistake? The answer is no. And the reason 
why is the underlying assumption everybody implicitly makes when they talk about stock market investments, which is that when you make the investment, you do not affect the price. In other words, you're so small that any amount you trade doesn't affect the price. And if that's true, then the percentage measure is a good measure because you choose how much you want to invest. The problem is that is a very exceptional case. It only applies to individuals investing in the stock market. If you're a big institution, you definitely do affect the price. So even their returns on a great measure. Then when you step away from public markets, you step into private markets, the measure is completely wrong because every investment you make is going to be at a particular scale. And then you have to worry about that scale and how much dollars you make. I think that Peter Lynch's career is the perfect example of exactly what you just described, which is when he started as the manager of the Magellan Fund, he was not managing that much money. It was in the millions of dollars. And so he made very high double-digit returns and alphas on the investments. And so therefore, in percentage terms, he looked like an absolute star. And then later in his career, when his fund had grown into the billions of dollars, suddenly the returns are much lower and people started to conclude that he must have lost his uh, mojo or that he must be a worse manager today than he was before. But obviously, once we start to talk about the dollars that he created through his investments, in the second half of his career, it was, what was it, a factor 20 higher than it was in the beginning of his career? He was just much more uh, impactful uh, dollar-wise in the la- later part of his career than in the first. Yes, absolutely. And when people are evaluating private equity and venture capital, they invariably talk about the IRRs of the investments and never talk about the scale at which they were able to invest. It's a fundamental mistake. The good investors, of course, realize this. But a lot of investors are focused on returns when it's just not appropriate to do so. No, in particular, because these return measures, particularly to equity holders, are going to be manipulable by one of the other big mistakes that we're going to talk about later, which is the amount of debt financing that you use. When you can control the leverage, there's a lot you can do to manipulate these IRR measures Whereas manipulating the value measures, the amount of dollars that the whole investment generates is much harder to do comparatively. So therefore, I think that focusing on returns, while many people do it, I think you should always be careful to interpret it in the right context. One of the foundational principles in economics is that good ideas are not an infinite supply. They're hard to find. And so how does that translate to finance language? That positive NPV opportunities are not an infinite supply. And so the assumption that you can just scale up a project as much as you want at the same return is the same as making the assumption that positive MPV opportunities can just be generated all over the place at that same return level. Or as the reality, of course, is that as you scale up the project, something that what we call decreasing returns to scale will kick in, and that makes it hard to scale it up to any level that you like. And so once we start to assume that return measures can just be scaled up infinitely, We are not properly taking into account that there are decreasing returns to scale. We're not taking into account the idea that positive MPV opportunities are not that easy to find. They're hard to find. And so therefore, that logic just doesn't work. And so focus when you evaluate, for example, mutual fund managers or private equity managers or any institutional investor, focus on the dollars that they generate, not the returns that they make. Jules, I just want to make sure everybody knows what we mean when we talk about a positive NPV opportunity. 
a opportunity to invest in markets are zero NPV, zero net present value. So a positive NPV opportunity is an investment opportunity that's better than an investment opportunity available to anybody. In other words, it is a good deal. So when we say there are few positive NPV opportunities, we're really saying there are few good deals in the world. When I joke about it, I say to students, Marx was right. What do I mean by this? Marx was right. What I mean is Marx lived in a different age. And in that age, there was a shortage of capital. And capital providers were able to make economic rents. You know, his argument was, no, 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 no. Capital doesn't deserve rents. Labor deserves rents. Well, that's the modern world today. Nobody earns rents on capital. As I like to tell my students, capital is an infinite supply for positive NPV investments. When you have a good deal, many people will line up to invest in your good deal. And so the price of that gets bid up to the point, and we'll talk about this in a second, so that the return on the capital is just defined by the riskiness of the investment opportunity. What's in short supply is good ideas. Good ideas come in scale. Yes. And who gets the benefit of the good ideas? Labor. It's exactly what Mark said. Labor gets the rents, not the capital. What's so funny about that, Jonathan, is that the irony is, of course, that those students are sitting in front of you exactly because they realize that by learning a lot and having a skill in short supply as part of the labor force, that's how they can make the rents, not as part of the capital. Right? So why are people investing in education as much as they are? Because once you have high skilled labor, that allows you to make a lot of money because that is something in short supply, not the capital. This is what capitalism has delivered. It's a much fairer world. Back in the world, when it was hard to find capital because the financial markets were not developed, capital providers got rent. So if you were born rich, you just got rents. It's highly unfair. Today, since capital markets are very competitive and it's easy to find capital for positive NPV opportunities, then if you're born rich, you just get the, the return for putting your capital at risk. But if you develop your skills and you work hard and you come up with an idea that nobody else has, then you become rich. It's a much fairer world. Ironically, capitalism has delivered the fairness that Marx wanted to do by fiat. That is probably one of the biggest ironies ever, indeed. All right, Jonathan. So the next topic that we should talk about is the difference between returns that have realized in the past... So returns that you have made as an investor, say, and the returns that you should expect to make going forward. So the difference between what we call realized returns and expected returns. And I think that the thing that people are most confused about is the following. If the world doesn't change, and so we're what's called in a stationary environment, right, then what will happen is that the average return that you made in the past is indicative of the average return that you will make going forward. But the question is, what is the difference between expected returns and realized returns when the world does change? And I think there are two scenarios that we should discuss. The first scenario, I think, is most easily explained by a bond investment. So if you buy a bond at a certain interest rate, and then if that interest rate changes, then the change in the interest rate will cause the price of the bond to drop if the interest rate goes up. Wait, Jules, it's, the way I like to think about this is if I buy a bond and the interest rate on the bond is 
and the next day interest rates become 7%. Nobody is going to want to hold my bond with a 5% interest rate if they can buy a new bond with a 7% interest rate. The only way to get somebody to buy my bond from me is to lower the price of that bond. And the price of the bond will go down just to the point when at the new price, the effective interest rate is 7% on that bond. Exactly. And so in that particular case, the realization of the return that you make, which is the fact that your bond price drops, actually moves in the opposite direction as what your expected return on the bond from that point forward moves into, because that's what the interest rate is. So the interest rate goes from five to seven, so it goes up. So your expected return goes up, and yet your realized return, the capital loss on the bond, is a negative number. Yeah, the expected return given the new price of the bond. And this is a more general concept, doesn't just apply to bonds. Anytime there's a change in what we call the discount rate, anytime there's a change in the cost of capital, this effect will occur. So if, if the cost of capital goes up, that causes a loss in value, so a drop in price. But of course, going forward at the new price, the expect return is higher because we just said the cost of capital has gone up. Indeed. And so we just discussed an example where expected and realized returns are actually negatively related to each other. We said that they would be the same if the world doesn't change. Well, the world does change. The cost of capital has changed or the interest rate has changed. And if that happens, we have a negative relationship between the realized return and the expected return. So now, Jonathan, can we think of an example where there's a positive relationship between the expected return going forward and the realized return in the past? Yes, of course, Jules. So team me up for this particular issue? Of course. So one could think about the following. Imagine we have a company and there's good news about the company and the company's good news comes out slowly, right? So yes. one day you find out good news about the company. Well, that means the price of the company will go up, right? To reflect the good news. And then the next day, more good news comes up. So again, it goes up. So if the good news comes out slowly, then a, real, a positive realized return will also lead to a, an, another positive realized return in the future. But of course, that depends on this idea that the, the news is coming out slowly. Yeah, or to say it slightly differently, that the news is slowly incorporated into prices. In other words, why wasn't it the case that when the first piece of good news came out, everybody realized that that had implications for the more good news coming out and therefore the price already adjusted in the first instance to this higher level? And indeed, this slow adjustment of the price to the good news is what many researchers believe to cause the so-called momentum effect. The momentum effect implies that past winners keep on winning for a bit more and that past losers keep on losing for a bit more. And so that is an effect that has been well documented in financial markets. I would make a small caveat there. I think there's no question that we see momentum in markets, whether or not it's caused by slow revelation of positive information or negative information. I think that's less agreed on. But so... The important thing to realize then is there's this relation between realized return and future returns, and that depends on how news comes out. Now, imagine a world where all the news comes out immediately. People are not, you know, they're fully rational, they fully realize what's going on. Notice that in that world, you'll have a, say, a good news will occur, you'll have a 
high return when the news comes out. But then the expected return in that world, since the risk of the company hasn't changed, would be the same as the expected return before the news came out. So in that sense, the expected return wouldn't have changed. All right, Jonathan. So the next topic that I think we should talk about is this idea that some people have that you can create quite a bit of value for companies by coming up with clever ways of financing them, meaning whether you finance them with debt or with equity or what some people also call financial engineering. And I think we should evaluate to what extent that claim is true, that the way that you finance companies, and if you do that in a clever way, you can generate a lot of value. Yeah, so Jules, this is an interesting topic, and I would even say bankers tend to make claims that the way they finance, how much equity and debt they have makes a big difference to their business operation. And I think the key insight is that it's hard to come up with good reasons why this is true. We'll talk about it in a, in a bit. You could think about certain frictions in the world where it could be a little bit true. It could be that financing can make a little bit of a difference. But for financing to make a big difference seems unlikely. And the uh, important insight here was derived by Medigliani and Miller. And I think the best way to describe it is to start with a simple example. Yeah. So let's think about the example of financing a house. Suppose you buy a house for a million dollars, you put 200000 in down payment, that's your equity position, and you finance the rest with a mortgage for $800,000. And so the key question you should then ask is, do you think that the price for which the house sells in the housing market is in any way related to how you chose to finance the house in the past. So if I finance it with 50% mortgage and 50% down payment versus 20% down payment and 80% mortgage, do you think that that in and of itself will change the house price? And I think most of us would say it seems very unlikely, given those numbers, that the house price would be materially affected by it. So that then raises the question, well, if it doesn't hold for a house that you cannot influence the value of the house by the way you finance it, why would it be true for a corporation? And Medigliani Miller proposition essentially says it isn't true. How you choose to finance a company can't determine the value of the company. The value of the company is independent of how you finance it. And although the proposition is called the Medigliani Miller proposition, and Miller at least got the Nobel Prize for pointing this out, in fact, they were not the first people to make the argument. The first person to make the argument was a fellow called John Burr Williams, who made it in his dissertation at Harvard University. And what's interesting about it is the simple argument he used in that dissertation. The argument he used was, imagine a company that had only one owner. Why would that owner care if his ownership shares came in either equity or debt? Either case, he gets all the cash flows of the company. So if the company's financed with 100% equity or 50% debt and 50% equity, either way, he gets exactly the same cash flows. So the ratio of debt to equity can't affect the value of his investments. Indeed. And this example of one investor holding both the debt and equity in a particular company in some proportion isn't even so far-fetched. Many pension plans today hold for companies the debt and the equity of that company. And so from their perspective, how the company decides to finance itself and what proportion is completely immaterial. But then if that result is true, Jonathan, why 
is it that so many people are trying to make the argument that financial engineering is this hugely value generating thing? Because you know, I think there are quite some private equity firms that would argue that the large amounts of debt that they use in the financing of those private companies is a value driver. Well, there are two answers to those questions. Let's start with a frictionless world with no frictions. Then, as we just pointed out, you can't increase the value of the company by coming up with a clever way of financing. But people think that you can, and it's because they make the following all else equal mistake. The all else equal mistake they make is they make the following argument. They say, well, look, if I finance the company with just equity, I'll have one set of investors. But if I finance the company with debt and equity, I'll have a different set of investors. And different investors demand different risk premium and therefore demand different prices. So the value of the company is going to vary depending on who's investing in the company. And that does seem like a logical argument, but it ignores an important insight. The insight it ignores is any investor can undo whatever the company does. So imagine the following scenario. Imagine I am an equity investor in an all-equity company, and the company management decide, no, 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 we're not going to be an all-equity company anymore. We're going to be a company that has 50% equity and 50% debt. Now, if I just hold the equity of that company, the equity is going to become much more risky because it's going to be levered equity now. And I would say to myself, boy, I don't want to hold levered equity. I just want to hold equity. I don't, you know, I don't want risky equity like that. And the naive argument says, well, then I'm going to try to sell my equity and that will change the price of equity. What's wrong with that argument is that I can always get my old equity back by just holding 50% equity, 50% debt in the same company. That would still be what I had before, an all-equity company. So I can undo whatever the company does. And because I can undo whatever the company does, I demand no price. There's no price change. So in fact, the price of the company does not change. The price of the... And, the, and Indeed. because investors can undo whatever the company does, the argument that who is holding the stock will affect the value is incorrect because investors can always undo what the company does. Indeed. And so, but the arguments that we just used are perfectly valid within a frictionless world, but there are a few frictions. And that's why at the beginning we said there may be a little bit of value creation that you can do through financial engineering because there are some relevant frictions. I think one of those frictions is the fact that most governments have decided that interest payments, so the money that you give to investors in the form of compensation for debt, is tax deductible. Whereas paying investors that are equity holders, you tax them. So there is a way to create some value there for the investors of the firm. Because all of the money that you pay to the investors in the form of debt payments, the government can't touch. And therefore, the tax bill will be lower if you finance yourself with more debt. Right. So you can save taxes by issuing debt and a lot of leverage buyouts. People think the value they're created in leverage buyouts is the uh, associate tax shield by issuing a lot of debt. I am not actually so convinced of that. I think a lot of value in leverage buyouts has to do with incentives. And when you incentivize people as people are with leverage buyouts, they do a much better job. It's, and, well, it's possible it's a combination of those two things. Certainly could be. The last two common mistakes we've covered in previous podcast episodes, so we 
don't have to spend that much time on them, but it's worth going back and thinking about them. The first one is that good companies are not good investments. Yes, indeed. And I think that the, the easiest way to get back to this one is just think about any other purchasing decision that you make. Suppose that you're going to buy a car and you can choose between a Porsche and a Toyota. Now, obviously, if you have to pay the same price for both cars, then getting the Toyota is going to be a bad purchase. But as soon as the prices can be different between the Toyota and the Porsche, then it depends on what exact pricing deal you get on both cars, which one of the two is a good deal and which one is a bad deal. Maybe I can get the Porsche for $60,000, and that's a fantastic price for that particular product and therefore a bargain and therefore a good investment between quotation marks. Whereas the Toyota, even if you would get it for $30,000, you're still overpaying for it. But if I could get it for $15,000, then maybe it is a fantastic purchase because it's such a low price for what I'm getting. And that is exactly the same thing with stocks. It is about what price are you paying for the stock relative to how good the company is. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how easy people forget this important lesson. Like I was actually talking to a student today who wants to start an investment firm. And he's identified a place where there's going to be enormous growth. There's no question about it. And so there's huge pressure on real estate prices. And his idea is to go in there and buy up real estate in a particular sector that he thinks will benefit, especially from the growth. And his investment thesis is absolutely correct. But I kept saying to him, how do you know the land prices don't already reflect the growth? It isn't good enough to say there's going to be this enormous growth. You also have to say that people don't realize it yet. And what evidence do you have for that? And he was giving me evidence like, oh, no, they don't realize it. I said, but what do you mean they don't realize it? What, what evidence do you have they don't realize? Oh, it's a small market in a small state. People don't fully realize it in the States. I'm saying, really? But you know about it. And again, it's not just good enough to say, look, there's going to be a big opportunity. You also have to be first. The prices should not have changed to reflect the investment opportunity. No, and so I think that on a previous podcast, we had a very clear example of when somebody actually does have a competitive advantage in terms of determining whether an investment is over or undervalued. When we were talking about the big short and we were thinking about housing markets, if you actually are going to analyze all the underlying data of the mortgages and make sure that you understand all the paperwork better than everybody else, and therefore you have information analyzed that other people didn't, then at least you can comfortably say, I have a competitive advantage that I can make money off. But in the vast majority of cases, indeed, I think we should be very careful before concluding just out of the blue that we just know better than everybody else. Anybody can say that at any point in time. What evidence do you have for it? And then the last common mistake is, of course, the money manager common mistake. The idea that just because you're investing with a good money manager means you're going to make a high return. It's the same argument again, right? If I know a money manager has an ability to pick stocks, and I know because of that ability, they could generate a high return, you've got to assume other people know that too. And if other people know that too, they'll all rush to invest with that money manager. And when they rush to invest with that money manager, they increase the size of the money manager's fund. And he has the harder time looking for opportunities that we discussed at the beginning of this episode. And that lowers his return. And people will keep wanting to invest with him until his return is equivalent to the return they would get investing in the market or in any investment where 
somebody isn't picking stocks. Again, it's the same argument. And it actually also goes back to one of the earlier problems and the fundamental underpinnings of modern finance, because I think the mistake comes from the following. I think most people think that just because they have investable money, they're special. They believe that they don't need any other competitive advantage or any other skill. Just by showing up with the money, you're so special that you deserve to earn a higher return. And they assume that, therefore, they must be getting that. And I think that, as you pointed out earlier when you said Marx was right, in fact, you're not that special if you just have investable money. At this point, there's so many people in capital markets that are constantly looking for investment opportunities that just showing up with money just won't cut it. You need to do something more. You have to think about the competition. Let me just make sure that everybody knows I'm joking about Marx was right. He said a lot of stuff. This is just one little thing. And most of the stuff is completely wrong, right? So it's a joke, okay? <laughs> well, on that joke, Jonathan, this seems like a good place to end the episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We look forward to seeing you in two weeks. Thanks for listening to the All Else Equal podcast. Please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. And be sure to catch our next episode by subscribing or following our show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For more information and episodes, visit allelseequalpodcast.com or follow us on LinkedIn. The All Else Equal Podcast is a production of Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and is produced by University FM.